This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by Isabel Hardman and James Forsyth. Today, the Prime Minister has been to Poland, where he has given a press conference on Russian aggression in Ukraine. Isabel, what did he have to say? Well, he repeated some of the the points he's made before about uh, his sort of confidence that Putin will fail, Putin must fail. He did also say that Putin is prepared to use barbaric and indiscriminate tactics against innocent civilians and gave the sense, uh, as Liz Truss and Ben Wallace have over the past few days, that things are going to get a a lot worse. He said that it it may take some time for this conflict to end. The sort of particularly striking things that he said were he he ruled out a no-fly zone, which is something that uh, some senior Conservatives, such as Tobias Elwood, have have been calling for. And uh, Boris Johnson's argument there was that it would basically bring the UK and other NATO countries into direct combat with Russia and it would be very difficult to control the consequences of that uh, particularly given we've seen a the Russian president putting his uh, nuclear forces on on high alert. Uh, he also said that the UK might be able to take in 200,000 uh, refugees from Ukraine. This is very much a subject that the government is on the back foot over after, as we covered in the podcast yesterday, the berry-picking visa debacle over the weekend. And then he was confronted by a campaigner who talked about her own experiences those of her family and her colleagues she was really on on the edge of tears and accused him of not coming to Kiev because he's in Poland not Ukraine uh, because he was afraid and said that just because Boris Johnson wanted to avoid World War 3 didn't mean that World War 3 wasn't already happening and that the children of Ukraine were the ones taking the hit uh, from that and I think the question that that everyone watching the press conference uh, was left with was well what do you mean when you say Vladimir Putin will fail? And how are you going to bring that about? Are the sanctions that you're introducing uh, enough? Uh, Is the support that you're giving to Ukraine enough? If you don't think that this failure can be achieved uh, with the UK being involved on a military basis, uh, what else is there for, for the UK to do? James, on that point, if we are, as being predicted, see ultimately many more civilian fatalities in the coming days and more forced by Putin. What other steps could the UK take? Has the UK government played most of the cards it's willing to play at this point? I think the most effective step, not in the short term, and it it is difficult to say this, but it is sadly true, you know, a no-fly zone is a, is a non-starter because for the reasons that Isabel set out. You know, it would involve NATO shooting down Russian jets and that would could lead to potentially catastrophic places. So very sadly for, for people in Kiev tonight, this appalling Russian assault is going to happen. I think in the medium term, the financial sanctions on Russia are harsher, more comprehensive and more globally supported than Russia was expecting. You know, the Russian central bank has had to more than double the interest rate to 20%. The ruble has lost a huge amount of its value. Uh, the Moscow Stock Exchange was not 
open yesterday. And every day brings news of more countries joining these. I think what you are seeing is that Putin with this invasion of Ukraine has made those democratic countries that benefit from the rules-based international order realise that they, they need to take steps to defend that economically. So Russia is on the way now to becoming an economically isolated country. And that is a remarkable step to be taken against a G20 economy. And I think that is the most potent weapon the West has. And I also think the other thing that is true is, sadly, Russia is going to win this war militarily, I, I, I fear. But Russia's initial military strategy of trying to take Kiev very rapidly, put a puppet government in place, and then hope for kind of creeping normalisation is not now going to happen. The level of Ukrainian resistance, I think, means that we aren't going to see calls in six months' time for these sanctions to be removed. I think you're seeing those countries in Europe that Putin might have thought would accept, take that view, Germany and France, really hardening their positions. You know, the Germans are now committed to spending 2% on defence by 2024. Uh, they're not certifying Nord Stream 2. There's even talk of whether you should extend the life of the nuclear power plants that Germany has to reduce dependence on Russian gas. You've got the French, you know, yes, Emmanuel Macron spoke to Putin yesterday, but it's also clear that the French are prepared to go even further on financial sanctions against Russia. All of these things mean that Russia is going to become increasingly cut off from the world economy. And that is going to have huge consequences for Russia in the years to come. Isabel, on that press conference, um, you spoke a bit about the no-fly zone, but when Boris Johnson was confronted by that Ukrainian activist, um, who's very obviously emotional, given the current situation, one of the other things they talked about were tougher sanctions. There has been, I think, a sense in recent weeks that Boris Johnson, uh, looking as though he's on the front foot on Ukraine and Russia, has obviously helped shore up his position. It's put things like parties into perspective. Do you think that's going to stay that way, or perhaps in the coming weeks as we've seen you know, horrors and atrocities mm. in Ukraine, it could actually start to almost uh, have the government look in effect of it all, you know, as slightly impotent. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very difficult conversation to have, isn't it, about anyone sort of benefiting from, from a war. And I think to a certain extent, a lot of that discussion happened before the invasion. So we all spoke to allies of Boris Johnson, supporters of Boris Johnson, who a month or so ago were saying... Ukraine is is quite a a useful distraction. They were saying that very privately, obviously. But as you say, Katie, with the the really harrowing footage we've seen, particularly of uh, children who are being affected, injured, killed in the attacks, I think it's going to be increasingly difficult for this to seem clear-cut and for Boris Johnson's handling of this just to be about him appearing to have grip on the situation not least because one of the sort of fundamental parts of this is how Britain treats the refugees that are coming out of Ukraine and as I said Britain has been on the back foot on this Yvette Cooper was talking about this on the Today programme this morning pointing out that other countries had been able to make arrangements for refugees uh, much more quickly than Britain and once again there had been a a lot of confusion from the Home Office over how many people would be able to, to come here and the arrangements for them being able to get visas and so on and it sort of ties into a I think a a wider issue about chaos in the home office and a sort of paranoia in the home office about 
letting down the defences on immigration on, on, on sort of any front, even when you have a war in a country that people are trying to escape. So I think things are much easier when something is in prospect rather than now. We are into the sixth day of conflict in Ukraine and because Vladimir Putin has not got his way um, as he'd hoped, because he'd underestimated, as Boris Johnson said, the resolve of Ukraine and the unity of the West things are going to get much uglier. We've seen already that things are getting uglier in Ukraine, but we can look across the world, we can look to Syria and see that Russia is perfectly prepared to to play dirty and to to do disgusting things to civilians uh, in order to achieve its ends. Yeah, look, I think this conflict is going to become more brutal, sadly. I think that is the inevitable outcome of the setbacks that Russia has suffered in the first few days. I don't think it's ever going to be returned to kind of the status quo ante in terms of dealing with Putin's Russia. You know, if he if they want to use the tactics that they used in Grozny and Aleppo on Kiev, then I don't think that anyone in whether it's been six months or a year and whatever the economic pain that it imposes on European publics, I don't think you're going to see people turning around saying, well, maybe we should lift the sanctions on Russia. It's been a bit tough. And I think that is a new reality. This is a realisation that these sanctions will be left in place for a very long time. One thing I would point everyone to, which I think is very significant, is how Japan, South Korea, Singapore are all joining in this sanctions effort. And they're joining, and, and Switzerland too, and they're joining in the sanctions effort because, in the case of those Asian countries, they can see that if you do not send a message that trying to redraw the map by force is punished economically and in severe ways, it makes it much more likely that China will attempt to do that with Taiwan. Thank you, James. Thank you, Isabel. And thank you for listening.